0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. One of the major themes that we've been covering on Ottoman History Podcast is of course the connections between the Ottoman Empire and other parts of the world, both the Muslim world and Indeed, the entire globe. Some of our episodes have focused on, for example, the lives of Chinese Muslims and the connections between China and the Ottoman Empire. We've also looked at connections between the Ottoman Empire and Africa, Zanzibar uh, and the Sahara. Today, we're exploring connections between the Ottoman Empire and a larger space of of our world, uh, Central Asia. Our guest today is Dr. Lale Jan, an assistant professor of history at City College of New York, CUNY. Her forthcoming book manuscript, provisionally entitled uh, Spiritual Citizens, Central Asians and the Politics of Pilgrimage in the Ottoman Empire, deals with the connections between uh, this space called Central Asia that we'll talk about a little bit uh, and uh, important sites of pilgrimage in the Ottoman Empire, which include not just uh, the Arabian Peninsula, but also Istanbul and other important Sufi sites as well. So, uh, Dr. John, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So, Lale, if I if I may, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. I've been familiar with your research for a while, and it's really unique research that uh, ties together these two spaces, um, not by looking at diplomacy and the the relationships between political uh, entities in Central Asia and the Ottoman Empire so much, but rather following the connections between these spaces that are woven by the movements of people. So. Um, you know, as we mentioned here, uh, a lot of this movement is uh, for the purposes of pilgrimage, which plays not just an important spiritual function in the lives of people, but various functions. So uh, I guess my, my first question starting off is just, how did you come to study this uh, uh, subject of pilgrimage as a window onto the connections of the connections between Central Asia and the Ottoman Empire and the lives of people in, that region.
1: That's a good question, Chris. Um, I actually started grad school uh, with the intent of studying Central Asian history, and I wanted to write a a social history of anti-Zarist resistance in the Fargana Valley. Mm. And there was one uprising in 1898, the Andijan uprising, that I had I was reading quite a bit about in my studies, and um, I was very interested in in writing about that account. So I headed to Uzbekistan for a semester in my. I think it was my second year of graduate school. And I did quite a bit of research there. And my intention was to sort of understand the, the broader social, economic, political uh, factors leading to this uprising in the, it, this was the Russian colony of Turkestan, the governor generalship, uh, because the uprising had previously been studied mainly as a sort of Sufi uh, revolt that was led by religious fervor, whatnot. So that's that is what initially took me to Central Asia. One claim in the revolt was that the leader of the uprising, who was a Naqshbandi, Naqshbandi sheikh who had traveled to the Ottoman Empire, had been given a farman and a ceremonial robe from this Ottoman Sultan Abdul hamid II. And so I was very interested in not just the claim, which was probably false, right? Because, I mean, the Ottomans are not going to be supporting this uprising. Uh, but the resonance of that claim among the followers. So mm-hmm. there were purported pur- 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 to be 2,000 people who had taken part in the revolt. And so I was very curious as to why such a claim would be made, how that would convince people to take part in the revolt. And usually it had been traditionally ascribed to pan-Islamism and right. potential Ottoman provocateurs in the region. So um, in any case, to make a long story short, the project never re- really got fully underway. I had gone to Uzbekistan, filled out all the paperwork saying I was going to work on anti anti-state resistance in the Faragana Valley and in 2005 there was anti-state resistance in the Faragana Valley and the archives were shut down to foreign uh. researchers. Um, I already uh, was not sure that I wanted to spend too much more time uh, working in Central Asia because the conditions are uh, are difficult. Um, so I then redesigned the project and headed to the Ottoman archives with that question in mind of, well, what what types of connections existed between this region, the, in the Fergana Valley, in Russian Turkestan, and, and the Ottoman Empire, that would lead people to put s- stock in this claim that Abdul Hamid supported resistance against the Tsar.
0: And so while uh, maybe other research on the connections between Central Asia and the Ottoman Empire, as, as in the case of other parts of the Muslim world, would emphasize the importance of pan-Islam as a political discourse, you're, you're looking at uh, the human connections between Central Asia and the Ottoman Empire.
1: Yeah, very much so. I mean, I one of the things that definitely drive drives my research and that I went into the archive looking for was to sort of to understand how these people, right? This is the age of mass pilgrimage. You know, how did these people understand the power of the Ottoman Sultan, right? The Sultan as caliph. So I was basically not convinced that pan-Islamism as an ideology as something that was propagated is what would what would drive people's mobility or their beliefs in the the possibility of Ottoman support. Right. And so instead you know what i what i endeavored to do was then to look at their actual interactions with ottoman state and society and so what what were the, what was the main thing that brought them into contact with the state right that was pilgrimage right and then through that process of pilgrimage which if we think of it not just as a a journey to mecca and back but a protracted journey through ottoman lands that brought people into contact with state and society in different ways then you see all of these encounters in terms of petitioning, right? Various forms of Ottoman patronage and philanthropy, uh, staying in Ottoman institutions, being treated in Ottoman hospitals, right? And it's a complicated story. It's not always a rosy picture. We know that the Hajj entails lots of hardship, but uh, different ways of experiencing Ottoman power uh, or ways of forming conceptions of the Ottoman sultan's power, right. in the late 19th and, and, and,
0: and in this process... I guess uh, the pilgrims uh, and the the migrants you're studying are um, finding a way to understand their place in a, in a broader global Muslim community that's and, and a conception of that community that's taking shape during this time
1: yes and you know one person who's written quite a bit about this recently is Niall Green right, right. so the idea that um, and and earlier a Khalid that uh, that there's the new conception of a alim Islam which mm-hmm. I mentioned before you know a, a a world of Islam and, you know, where, where do these pilgrims and these migrants fit into that, right? Mm-hmm. So, especially in, their tra- in travel accounts, you see this idea emerging and, you know, while Mecca might be the heart, right, the holy lands of Islam, Istanbul becomes sort of the temporal, the political capital of this, right. this Islamic world. And, uh, and it seems, you know, through the types of sources and the research that I've done, that people did feel that they, you know, that they could stake a claim of belonging to that world right through making demands or if you want to call them, I tend to call them demands, but you can think of them as supplications uh, in petitions for certain, for certain rights, for certain types of uh, sultanic charity. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, And so you've mentioned uh, the Fergana Valley, which is part of what we today call Central Asia situated uh, in Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. But, I mean, when, OK, so when we say Central Asians in the Ottoman Empire, what is the region we're talking about? And to the extent that this is a coherent region during this time period, mm-hmm. uh, what makes Central Asia Central Asia?
1: So that's a great question, Chris. Uh, the region that I work on, Russian and Chinese Turkestan. And when I say Russian Turkestan, I mean the governor generalship of Turkestan, uh, which was which mostly of the former Khanate of Kokand, uh, plus the d- dynastic states of Buhara and Khiva. Chinese Turkestan, I mean mainly the areas around Kashgar and its environs, um, the cities of al uh that Ryan Thum has re- recently written an excellent book about. Um, so that's sort of the area that I focus on mainly. Uh, to a lesser extent, people from northern Afghanistan,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which become Im- more important as I deal with questions of extraterritoriality and sort of r- the claims of the British to protect people from right. various parts of the region. But that's mainly the area. So in the Ottoman sources, it's translated usually as Asya Vusta for the the broader region and Turkistan Chini for so-called Chinese Turkestan. One thing that I should add, though, that I found really interesting is that probably going back to the early modern era, uh, because the Ottomans mainly had relations with the, with Buhara, there was a tendency in a lot of the sources to describe all of Central Asia, w- I would say with the exception of Chinese Turkestan, as Buhara. Oh, that's so, interesting. Th- yeah, so in a lot of places, you'll see people referred to as a Buharin, and then it, you, the doc- the source will go on to say, you know, so-and-so who's a Bukharin, who is from the city of Margilan, right? Mm-hmm. Which is not in Buhara, right? And so you see that Quite a bit, and probably there's a sort of association of Central Asians with Buhara that becomes a sort of misleading designation for the broader area.
0: And so the view from Istanbul is kind of this vague, like Central Asian region where the, the politics aren't necessarily clear. And uh, you know, from the perspective of geopolitics, it's kind of a region where uh, there's competition. There's there's the British South Asia, which is kind of extending to this territory. You have China mm-hmm. uh, coming from the east, and of course. Uh, Russia coming from the West. And so, of course, there's a lot of uh, political fragmentation and change that's going on in this region, and this would even raise issues uh, regarding uh, nationality and citizenship, as you'll probably talk about. But in terms of its cultural coherence, I mean, what we have is, uh, of course, this what we might call Turkic persianite like culture of people speaking various languages from those two families, and of course the role of Islam, and especially uh, Sufism, mm-hmm. which... of I guess is what really links this region to the Ottoman empire and, and the notion and the issue of pilgrimage.
1: Yes, there's definitely a long-standing tradition of Sufi networks that linked central Asia to the, to the Ottoman lands, right? So in Dina Lagal study, for example, we see in the early, early, early modern period, how the Naqshbandiya were very central to forging connections with, between, uh, central Asia and, and the Ottoman empire. Uh, and this continues right into the 19th century you know, in the mid eighteenth century, there are actually a number of so of Central Asian Sufi lodges that are established in in Istanbul, in uh, places like Tarsus. there's there are important lodges in Jerusalem. Actually, I can't speak to the dates that those lodges are established, but the ones in Istanbul mm-hmm. go back to the mid eighteenth century, mainly. It's part of a larger sort of network that people uh, patronize as they're traveling across the empire, right? So in the early modern period, and into, actually, into the early 19th century, I would say that it's a lot of emissaries who are traveling from the region, from Buhara, from from Samarkand, from cities yeah. that are associated with a certain type of cultural capital, religious uh-huh. capital, uh, emissaries, dervishes, uh, ulama, who often write and ask, you know, who are t- seen as men of honor, right, mm-hmm. who are given sort of special permissions to travel and, and treated with a great deal of respect, and this starts to change in the mm-hmm. 19th century. So the network of Sufi lodges is still there. Though I would say, though, that in my own work on this, I'm not treating necessarily everyone who's traveling and that stays in any of these lodges or, or frequents them as right. you know a Sufi. You know, I'm right, not this sure is an exactly institutional
0: or structural framework, but of course these are all sorts of individuals right. who are undertaking this travel.
1: Right, and I don't know how they would self-identify, right? right? I mean, I don't know if you ask someone in... 1890 or in 1905, you know, are you a Sufi? I'm not sure how they would answer that question. So right. they might go, they might be an adept of some Naqshbandi order or a different order. They might go to, uh, you know, the the Thursday evening rituals at a, a particular lodge. But I'm not sure if they would call themselves that. Right. right? But they're definitely uh, a lot of the people who are traveling are are staying in these Sufi lodges that o- often function as sort of hostels or sort of urban caravanserais.
0: And so, I mean, we can't generalize about why all of these people were traveling. But of course, the, the, the locations you named Istanbul, Tarsus, uh, Jerusalem, this is part of the land route of the most common uh, Hajj pilgrimage during the early modern period.
1: Uh, yes, well, barring Istanbul, right? I mean, so okay. for I would say that. In the early modern period, people were traveling uh, in a variety of ways, but mm-hmm. Istanbul was not necessarily a place that people would visit unless they were dignitaries who were dispatched on some sort of you know, diplomatic mission to go to Istanbul.
0: So what is the route from the Faragana Valley before the 19th century, if, if you're headed, for example, to Mecca?
1: So there, I mean, the shortest routes would be probably through Iran right? Uh-huh. Um, Iran, and then onward from there. And of course, you know, we have this old sort of barrier of heterodoxy argument that, you know, has actually been very effectively challenged uh, by Robert McChesney and others. Um, so that's one possibility. People could have traveled in that way. Uh, people could have traveled across the steppe and uh, through the Caspian region, then into Anatolia and southward. So uh-huh. Tarsus, the Azana region, Damascus, these would be places that, you know, people would ultimately end up in Damascus and join the... Okay. Caravans. Uh, so those are some possibilities. And then, of course, there's the route through India, right? I mean, so uh-huh. historically, and, and that, which continues to be a very important route into the modern period. Um, so lots of people, especially from China and from the Fergana Valley, uh, as well as Bukhara, you know, they might travel through Afghanistan and then into India and then onward from there to the Arabian Peninsula. So, but this all, of course, changes mm-hmm. with the sort of the revolution in steam and steamships mm-hmm. and, and rail travel uh, where istanbul emerges as one of these m- new nodes of 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 travel right new hajj hubs as uh-huh. they are often referred to in the literature where ordinary people right the the so-called pauper pilgrims and i always say that um with the imaginary quotation marks right. you know uh where where ordinary people are able now to travel on this rather circuitous r- route through the Ottoman capital as they make their way to Arabia, and that, you know, by the 1880s, uh, Istanbul becomes you know a destination in and of itself for many people. Right. Uh,
0: that's that's fascinating. So I mean I I'm familiar with the the Indian Ocean route, right? Like that the steamships mm-hmm. l- leave South Asia and arrive to the Arabian Peninsula. But you're saying that another aspect or another kind of route uh, of steam travel uh, from Central Asia to eventual Mecca is indeed, I guess, across the Black Sea on steamships to Istanbul and then from there through the Ottoman Empire.
1: Right, so you have, you know, with the construction of new rail lines, yeah. uh, which reaches Samarkand in 1888 and, and Tashkent in 1899, you have people who are boarding trains from from Russian Turkestan um, and then and then taking them to to steamships that travel across the Caspian, and then rail again and then into the Black Sea. And then they're traveling to... To port cities in the Black Sea, like Odessa, uh, Sevastopol, and then from there on to Istanbul, and then from Istanbul then on to Egypt, um, making use also of the Suez Canal, right, and then continuing on to oh. Jeddah. So this is a whole new route um, that is written about quite a bit in a lot in the travel accounts that I uh, that I work with, and um, you know it's a it's a it's a an, it's another it's an alternate way to travel rather than going through india that promises people the opportunity to see the sultan right the sultan mm-hmm. caliph yeah um and it's often written you know in the literature the way that people describe this is that usually uh that people went to seek the ceremonial blessing of the sultan at friday prayers right so you know there are descriptions of this in one Hajj account that i'm reading which is which was written at the turn of the century um, by uh, an alim muhammad salih tashkandi and um he describes you know being able to see the face of the sultan and he describes this this scene of the sultan you know flanked by by his guards and arriving on you mm-hmm. know, in a, on a palanquin, palanquin is that the right word um <laughs> i'm thinking of sedem they didn't get his work right and sort of the invention of tradition and sort of the the ways in which the power of the sultan is promoted right and um and you very much see that reflected in the account where the the author is describing the pomp and circumstance surrounding the the Friday prayers and is very impressed by the entire by the ceremonies.
0: So it's it's almost like a, one of the destinations on the stop of this Hajj pilgrimage is to kind of go and see uh, this the ceremony with the Sultan in Istanbul and of course probably lots of other things that. One could do in Istanbul, right, While and, there,
1: yeah, definitely. So, um, just seeing the city itself, right? Wandering the streets, seeing the colorful, colorful markets, and you know, I don't really work on the uh, economic dimensions of this, yeah. but a lot of these people are merchants, right? A lot of people exactly. who are traveling to the region, and this same author, uh, Tashkandi, you know, he he goes on and on about the markets and the colorful stalls and the bolts of fabric, and right, he's very impressed by all of this. And then, you know, leaving that aside, there's you know, arriving in Istanbul during ramazan and visiting the different uh, cathedral mosques right mm-hmm. and going for teravi prayers and the city then is presented as sort of also a spiritual destination right he writes at length about listening to the um the quran being recited in the various mosques um, and how after this really long, very arduous journey, right, that involves like his ship almost capsizing, uh, all of these horrible conditions, where people are crammed into in, into har, you know, second and third class quarters, and the steamships and the trains yeah. and whatnot. You know, it's it's in Istanbul that that the dust is lifted from their hearts, right? That's how he describes it. Um, and then this sort of spiritual dimension of the city is also augmented by visiting the t- the 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 shrine of e- Ebu Eyyub al-Ansari, uh-huh. right? e- Eyyub Sultan, which becomes also a very popular destination. Um, and so I would th- I would actually venture to say that, you know, for the shrine visitation culture of Central Asians, this becomes another, you know, another, a new place that people start to visit, maybe replacing other other shrines that they used to visit.
0: Yeah. That's a very fascinating view of Istanbul during this 19th century period, because you have this extraordinary growth of Istanbul, Right. Um, and, but normally we talk about, for example, the growth of para, the growth of the European section of Istanbul, the, the influx of foreigners, the influx of the economic uh, changes that took place during that time. But here you're saying that also, uh, you know, the, the, the Ottoman capital took on a spiritual significance that perhaps became greater with uh, these new kind of transportation networks that allowed people to come to the capital. You know, there's some stuff written on, you know, how air travel has affected the pilgrimage, right? That now people can fly directly to Mecca and how it changes it. And it's almost like flying to Disney World, right? You just drop in and come back out. Right. Here we see a transformation like that occurring, like with the steamship and the railway. It changes the journey, but it's not exactly that kind of... We we have to we can't think of the pilgrimage as just going... To Mecca, right? It's going to all these other places. Yeah,
1: definitely. And I mean, I I teach a class on pilgrimage and that's one point that I try to make with my student, you know, to my students where you know, I try to drive home that point that it's not this is not a question of getting on a plane, going, performing the rites, you know, stoning Satan and then, you know, completing the rituals and then returning. This is the pilgrimage in many ways is transformed in this era. And it's it's not only transformed for elites, right? It's not something um that sort of Reformists, reformers, and intellectuals are interested in doing in terms of seeing the broader world and um, critiquing perhaps their own societies through writing about the different places that they've visited. It's transformed for these, you know, for these ordinary people. And I keep using this term for lack of a better term. You know, sometimes I refer to them as non-elites. I try to shy away from the use of subaltern because I'm not sure that that's the right term uh, in this context. But you know, these are butchers, bakers, glaziers, day laborers, farmers, metal workers, right? All of these sorts of people. And it seems like going to Istanbul becomes something that involves also a type of prestige, right? That they can yeah. say that they went and they, they saw the lands of, of Rum, right? That they, they saw the Sultan Caliph. Um, and... You know, and also there's also there again, there is a sort of economic dimension to this. Some people stay in the city for a while. And this network of of Sufi lodges makes that possible where people can stay in the city uh, and and work for a bit and save up some money. Right. Um, so there's there's a lot that's going on here. But it's really interesting when you read the Hajj accounts, you know. Over and over, the the authors are saying, you know, you have to go and you have to see these places for yourself, right? That that nothing that I say, my pen cannot do justice to the 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 wonders and the marvels that 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 you should see, and you know, it's really it's it's in Istanbul that you hear this, and then of course, right, in Mecca and Medina, right, and so in in the sources that I read, they they do not involve travel to Jerusalem. Oh, um, interesting, right? But uh, I'm not sure if that's something particular to the, to the to the particular is that I've been reading but um, or if it's you know also related to the the routes right the the, mm-hmm. the, the steamship well, routes to, right? of course. so that Jerusalem would be a whole another level right, of of travel that would make the journey even longer so that too is there you see the beginning of a transformation there although people still are going to Jerusalem I mean because that does come up quite a bit in sources that I've read where people You know, random things like people in Jerusalem were given Tizkire Osman, Osmania, like while they were in Jerusalem by a sheikh and then they're traveling somewhere else. And it's not clear why they were given this and if they're foreigners or if they're um, if they're Ottomans.
0: Well, you you know, one of the things I'm interested in is this uh, issue of petitions that you mentioned earlier, how uh, Central Asians, once they're in the Ottoman Empire, start to engage with that broader uh, sort of political community. Um, But, you know, one of the things I want to ask here is, uh, can you give us a sense of the volume of pilgrim traffic from Central Asia to the Ottoman Empire during this period? To what extent do we see an increase? How significant? How can we measure it? And, you know, sort of... How many are coming from the Indian Ocean versus uh, across Central Asia?
1: There's a huge increase in the 1880s and into the 1890s in the numbers. Um, I don't know that I have really reliable statistics um, to answer this uh, this question as well as I would like. Um, I mean, I've seen some recently some really inflated. What I see is really inflated numbers, new research that I, that I read where um, there are claims of, you know, upwards of 100,000 people coming from the broader Central Asia and Caucasus region, which I think is, you know, definitely exaggerated. But I think what, you know, based on the types of sources, people using Russian sources, which I don't really use, um, like Daniel Brower in his earlier research, Eileen Kane, you know, and Norihiro Naganawa, it seems like in the 1890s um, there are, Five to ten thousand people traveling through um, traveling through Ottoman lands, uh, and it, it really depends on harvests. So the numbers can really depend on the cotton yield hmm. of a given year. So you, you know there are dips. Um, like one recent study by Naganawa, uh, he cites figures from the Russian consulate in Jeddah from eighteen ninety three, uh, where the consul cl- the consuls recorded four thousand. Three hundred or some odd Russians traveling through Bombay, Russian Muslims, uh, and another eighteen hundred or so through Suez, right? So that seems more reasonable to me. Uh, Again, so anywhere from five to ten thousand a year. Uh, That I don't know if that includes right Chinese Muslims, so-called Chinese Muslims. Um, Here I mean people coming from Chinese Turkestan, but. I definitely don't think that the numbers are nearly as high as Indian Muslims for example or you know Javanese Muslims that are traveling from other parts of the world so but it's it again it's really hard to to say with any uh, level of definitiveness um, the Ottoman sources you know in various sources you have ministers complaining about the numbers <laughs> and saying but there too it seems like you know uh, in the in the early 1900s the the Ministry of the Interior reports that 2,000 people, uh, and and b- from Buhara and its en- environs, were passing through Istanbul en route to the Hijaz. Hmm. Right, so the numbers are really not
0: right. That it depends high. how we define it, but we're talking about you know kind of maximum tens of thousands of people per year, or even less.
1: Yeah, I would say you know maybe 10,000 or so. But again, I because I there are no I have not been able to find reliable statistics. Um, you'd have to sort of piece this together through mm-hmm. british records of the hajj R- russian sources doing research in russian ar- uh, imperial archives so but the sense that i have again is 5 to 10,000 per year
0: and one of the intriguing things you said there is actually that you know the the numbers could vary a lot depending on the economic uh, uh, situation in central asia right this is an area of cotton cultivation right. during this period it's sort of expanding it's the russian cotton plantations of you know central asia and so a bad year means nobody has cash, no hajj this year, right, for a lot of a lot of people. So you see how this like discretionary income starts to play a role in people's uh, you know, vacation choices we can call it. Or but they were of course thinking of this pilgrimage.
1: Right. Yeah, no, I actually think vacation choice also makes sense. Because yeah. I mean, where else are these people going on vacation, right? I mean this is the the journey of a lifetime. If you're gonna set out to go on Hajj to Mecca, you might as well see as much of the world as you can, sure. right? and that's also, I think, what dictates people's choices to travel through Istanbul in, in a lot
0: of ways. And so, so for the remainder of our discussion, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the movements and the connections of people. But I want to, you know, I know you're very interested in the social history of these communities, and 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 a lot of uh, what your forthcoming book is going to deal with is sort of uh, the life of these people in the Ottoman lands to the extent that we can study that. Uh, and, you know, we have these Sufi lodges, we have this sort of permanent presence of a, a small, um, small enclaves of Central Asians. And of course, these are the communities that sort of fatil- facilitate those larger movements through the Ottoman Empire. You know, being that these, these pilgrims are staying for a while and often maybe don't have exact clear plan of when they're going to return mm-hmm. uh, back to their homes during the pilgrimage, I mean, what, have, what, what is their life like while they're in the Ottoman Empire? What are some of the issues that come up and how do they engage with broader Ottoman society?
1: Um, that's a very big question. So, well, I sure. mean, I'll try to answer um, to the, the best of my ability. In, in Istanbul, you know, I've I been able to sort of piece together some s- sense of what life would be like for someone staying in uh, this one particular lodge, right? The, the Sultan Tepe Lodge in Üsküdar, uh, which was mm-hmm. one of the prominent, Central Asian lodges, often referred to as the Uzbek Dar Um So, I was able to gain access to the private records uh, of the the Tekyas. And what you see there is people are working. They're going out to work either as domestic servants, working in uh, ho- various households, in tea houses, uh, they're going to work at, at Hans in the old parts of the old city. So, I know that there were there was a strong presence in and around Mahmud Pasha, for example, lots of Central Asians who were involved, who were artisans. So people might have been working in that area. Um, so pe- there, people are definitely working. They're sort of they're staying for extended periods. I mean, there are records of people who who lived at the lodge for twenty years, for example, oh, wow. and um, no one was allowed to stay at the lodge for extended amount for extended periods without working. So. Uh, you know, I think that definitely they were sort of very much part of the urban fabric of the city. And then there are snippets of things that are going on in the lodge, um, you know, that that I find really fascinating and that kind of give you a sense that remind you also of sort of when we're dealing with this sort of pilgrimage that, you know, these are still, again, just they're regular people and they're living their lives. And this involves all sorts of things. Right. So you have um, you have people who are thrown out of the lodge for various things like playing cards at the cafe at the coffee. House for for coming back at night drunk, for um, smoking hashish, right? All of these types of things, violations of, yeah. of the norms of the lodge. Um, so that would give you a sense of sort of how they're involved in different aspects of the of the life of the neighborhood in, in and around Uskudar. And then you also have a lot of people who are traveling and are sort of using the lodge as a sort of a base, right? So people who are going to. To Bursa and returning, who are going to Konya and coming back, going to Tarsus, traveling, going on Hajj, coming back, perhaps you know, staying, saving up some money, uh, going back home, you know, going all the way back to Kashgar in some cases, and then returning again, and the all of their movements are traced in the the ledger, so you you can see there too that it's not um, that life isn't always necessarily. Centered around Istanbul, but that Istanbul is sort of a base for a lot of people for these extended journeys throughout the empire, um, back back to Central Asia, and then and then back again to the to the empire.
0: And are these uh, to what extent are these families? Are is this predominantly men or?
1: I would say it's predominantly men, but there are definitely definitely women and children, right? So um, there was there's was one. Guy who was there, I think he arrived in 1900. He was there until 1921, when he was finally, when they were finally given, um, they were finally told that they had to leave the lodge. I guess they had overstayed their welcome, but you know they were living there for 20 some odd years, and uh, it was uh, an older man in his. I want to say in his 80s and his wife and their three daughters. So, you know, this was a family and the, you know, there were definitely families that were there. And this one was a particularly funny example. I think that he must have had a very, a much younger wife because at one point during the stay, she was involved in some sort of illicit relationship with another lodger at the guest. Uh, at the Tekya, who was then also forced to leave. And I realize right now that I'm painting this picture of Sufi lodges as dens of iniquity, which is not at all my intention, but the point being that, you know, these um, pilgrims, they, they're. this is just another part of, of their life, you know, staying in Istanbul for these extended periods, right? The piety is very important, going on the Hajj, being forgiven for their sins. But at the end of the day, when they're in Istanbul, they're, you know, they're not dervishes and in ascetics in, in, in all cases.
0: And so, I guess uh, one of my other questions regarding in, in the same vein is of course, we've mentioned the idea that this is sometimes turning into semi permanent migration mm-hmm. or long term stay, work stay, whatnot, what have you. Uh, so, there's all sorts of questions I could ask, but the one I'm really curious about is what happens when one of you know, a man comes from Central Asia. Um and uh, during the course of his pilgrimage, finds himself married to an Ottoman citizen. This this mm-hmm. must be happening during mm-hmm. this time period, right?
1: Yeah, it is happening. I mean, there are lots of instances of people marrying Ottoman women and also trying to become Ottoman citizens, right? So, um, there are two different types of sort of residents or migra- you know semi permanent migration. I mean, on the one hand, you have the Mujavir, the long term residents of the holy cities of Mecca and Medina who come specifically for the purpose of resigning for you know in, an indefinite period of time in the holy cities, often get appointed to a position, receiving some sort of stipend, living as scholars, as students, as prayer reciters and whatnot, what, you know, what have you. In, in many cases, I, I see these people, I define them as de facto Ottomans. They never f- officially become Ottomans, but for all intents and purposes, they're living like Ottomans, right? And in, in Mecca and Medina actually really hard to distinguish an ottoman from a non-ottoman because nobody's paying taxes and no one's being conscripted right so the issue then is about land sales and the ability to buy property and maybe we can talk about that um after but the other type of sort of uh resident or semi-permanent migrant you know are, are these people who come and they stay again also for indefinite periods of time not necessarily as mujavir who might marry who might settle who are involved in some sort of business transactions and are there for you know for, for years, and in some cases, again, they try to become Ottoman citizens, right? Uh, and, and in other cases, they they never renounce their Russian subjecthood, um, and they're living in the empire. Uh, and it's usually not a problem until there's some sort of legal dispute, or there's some attempt to buy or purchase land, um, or or even when they die, right? So so people yeah. who've been living for twenty years in 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 you know, in Istanbul, in, um, in in parts of Iraq, right, in, in other parts, in different provinces in the empire, it only becomes a problem after they die, and that is, of course, you know, when when the Russian consulate gets involved, or in the case of Afghans, the British consulate gets involved, and claims those people as their own subjects and this is you know this is an area that i did a lot of new research on and that i'm that i've been writing about and th- this really becomes then an issue for the for the ottoman state um it be- because of these a lot of these things turn into protracted diplomatic battles and it becomes a larger question about defending ottoman sovereignty um you know the question of er- extraterritoriality uh, is a really important one for the ottoman state right as the state is struggling with the the seemingly endless uh, types of protection to foreigners, you know, the last thing that it needs is for Muslims uh, to now be able to claim extraterritorial rights.
0: Um, Well, right. That was going to be my question. So these people, as you said, are in an ambiguous uh, place. They are Muslims. Mm -hmm. And so kind of like, as that becomes a very important uh, aspect of a, a broader Ottoman identity, we can see how they could live their daily life just as uh, locals, But on the other hand, of course, being a British subject, I mean, uh, or a Russian subject, if you're a Christian subject of those empires, you are not allowed to necessarily uh, just obtain land as you like and, and do all the things that Ottoman citizens would have been able to do. So, you know, how does it, do you have any good cases of how that kind of plays out? Or is it kind of case-case basis
1: I I have a number of good cases, but there is a lot of divergence, and in a lot of instances, it depends on where and when, right? And there's a lot of back and forth, and there's a lot of um, pushback from provincial authorities. So there are a number of issues. Uh, There are a number of different issues. I mean, first, I would actually say that you know, being a Muslim doesn't necessarily allow you to do certain things that Christians can't. I mean, it's it's not that black and white, right? So. You know, by 1882, there are prohibitions on land sales to Muslims in the Hejaz, right? And a lot of really great research is being done on this. Uh, A lot of people, a lot of Muslims are able to get around these prohibitions through proxies, uh, through obtaining certain identity papers, uh, people vouching on their behalf, right? So to some extent, they're able to circumvent these laws and still obtain property. But the problem, again, is that foreign authorities like the Russian consul, for example, often doesn't accept uh, that, that these are, are Ottomans, or that those documents are valid because the person in question never legally renounced their Russian subjecthood before they left the Russian Empire. So that becomes a, a major problem. Um, some other interests, like I have, some fascinating cases in the eighteen nineties and early nineteen hundreds of Afghans, right? And that this this was not a population that I had originally been that I had originally been doing research on, but you know, it sort of makes sense in dealing with these questions of extraterritoriality. People who had who had left, you know, uh, Afghanistan uh, in the 1850s, right, or even earlier, and settled in parts of the empire, and who had um, pretty much lived as Ottomans, right, um, for most of their lives, and then at some point, probably due to some sort of commercial venture or transaction, they claim to be under British protection, and or or in many cases when they've committed a crime, right, or they're going mm-hmm. to be. Um, Conscripted, <laughs> So yeah. they will suddenly claim that they're under, far, you know, British protection. And um, the Ottoman state does not take kindly to these cases. And to some extent, they're, I think, more successful in rejecting these types of claims of Afghans to British protection than they are uh, Muslims from the Russian Empire. But you have, you know, I can just sort of sometimes... Envision the the the, Ottoman, <laughs> the men in the foreign ministry. Like, just I can just picture them livid, saying, "You know, how on earth can this person be a British subject? Right? He's been living in Ottoman lands for forty years and availed himself of of all of the rights and protections that come with being an Ottoman subject, and now we're supposed to think of you know him as a, as a, a British subject? You know, the the claims are preposterous. And what is really interesting here is then you see a sort of you know engagement with international law where you know in particularly in the hukuk mshavirli and the oldas where people are working out these different understandings understandings and conceptions of rights based on the place of origin of the the petition to the claimant in question so um the ottomans have a, a long standing policy of claiming that uh even after agreements between the the afghan um, emir
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the and the british right that it rego- you know in terms of ability to conduct foreign policy that regardless of what part of afghanistan people are from that they're under the exclusive protection of the ottoman caliphate right so that that they have no right to claim any sort of foreign protections so um that is one one approach then in dealing with subjects of russia uh, of of the of russian turkestan and of buhara things become more complicated and here you see actually a real lack of of knowledge of sort, you know, where people are not really clear even what the status is of these of these various states. Uh, you know, are they annexed territories? Are they colonies? Um, and so you see how Ottoman statesmen are dealing with these questions. And you know what it seems like that they arrive at is that in many cases they decide that um, that subjects of annexed territories do not have the rights of quote unquote real citizens. Right? That, that they don't. They're they're not considered. Uh, imperial citizens within the Russian Empire, so that they don't have the, they don't have the right to claim those same protections abroad. Um, for people who are um, coming from states like Bukhara, they decide that these people should be considered mahmis, people who are protected, and that they actually have no basis for claiming the rights that Russian citizens would have. Um, and then when it comes to China, and I'm sorry, I'm going on and on, the Ottomans don't have diplomatic relations with China, official diplomatic relations, and so they lump them under the same category as Afghans and say that, like the Afghans, people who are coming hmm. from Chinese okay. Turkestan are under the exclusive protection of the Ottoman Caliphate. The problem then is that there is no working out of what this means. What does it mean to be under the protection of the Caliphate in you know, a system that is increasingly where rights are increasingly tied to international law and the state from which you originate.
0: Mm -hmm. And we can see how, you know, thinking about the the bigger picture here, you know, I think I have a sense of of what what your understanding of this whole question is. But, um, you know, it seems to me like... As these uh, notions of citizenship and even compete, competition over who's, who's a subject of who and sort of how colonialism is playing a role in defining this, people from regions like Central Asia are kind of in the middle of this conversation, making it a, them a very interesting window onto how notions of subjecthood are being shaped in practice, but also it kind of puts them in a vulnerable position.
1: It does. And I mean, I think that, you know, there's a lot to be said for this idea of forum shopping and people being very savvy and being able to navigate different citizenship regimes. And, you know, I see a lot of this um, in 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 cases of people who are living in Mecca and Medina who don't give up their Russian subjecthood. Um, they sort of... They live again, for all intents and purposes, as Ottomans until it makes sense for them to claim that they're yeah. Russian subjects, right? And so there is there is an element of that, but then there are a lot of people, right? Particularly people from Afghanistan or people who are coming from Kashgar and and other cities in Chinese Turkestan who are not able to do that, right? Who do not have a foreign state that is uh, that is you know actively advocating for their extraterritorial rights. And I mean, they're
0: almost stateless. They're
1: they are they are, and the sort of so the the ottomans response to this that they're it, the exclusive protection of the caliphate, you know doesn't really provide them with a the type of citizenship that doesn't give them a passport right it doesn't it so the types of rights that they have i mean in many ways they have to sort of turn to the state um through petitions and they have to ask for things that then ends up being sort of reinforcing this sort of discourse of pan-islamism and mm-hmm. the, the role of the sultan and caliph as the protector of pilgrims and the hajj right because what other recourse do they have you know they can try to claim for example russian protection but in many cases that's rejected and it by the ottoman state and never you know is not actively pursued right. by russian consuls
0: and i mean sometimes it's easy for us to simplistically think that this emerging notion of citizenship is one of inclusion sort of leveling the political uh, identities in, throughout the world. But on the other hand, it can be also one of exclusion in, the, in cases such as these.
1: Right. And I think that in this context of the late 19th and early 20th century, actually, what you have is, is you know, a, aspects of both, of inclusion and exclusion. So mm-hmm. in this period in which foreign Muslims, Tebaya and are being excluded from the Ottoman uh, body politic, right, at the same time that the state is claiming a sort of... St- spiritual and political authority over them right uh through the promotion of pan-islam so you know that's a really important and interesting tension i think in the in in the late ottoman state right that actually these this sort of case study illuminates like much broader questions about where muslims fit in foreign muslims fit into the ottoman state
0: so Lala, i mean we're we're gonna learn more about all these the details of some of these things in your book, obviously. But one of the questions I do want to ask or maybe get your thoughts on is what happens when the Ottoman Empire no longer exists? And, you know, you mentioned in the background is this understanding of the caliphate. Okay, maybe in some cases uh, Pan-Islam is uh, overemphasized, but nonetheless, being that it is a component of, you know, this pilgrimage networks and people's identities, what does the... The fall of the Ottoman Empire, the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, mean for people in Central Asia, and their movements in that territory.
1: So, I would say that with the collapse of the Ottoman state, um, you have a number of different dynamics. So, on the on the one hand, the sort of large-scale mobility that we see between you know 1860 and the First World War effectively comes to an end. So, you you know a lot of these people are not going on Hajj. You know, they they can't because of the war, and then after, because of the the collapse of the Russian Empire and the birth of the Soviet Union. Right, uh, a lot of that mobility effectively comes to an end. So, uh, but at the same time, for people who flee, a lot of those paths that are forged uh, still become relevant. Right, but it's not necessarily directly or exclusively to Istanbul. So you have these huge emigrate communities in what becomes Saudi Arabia. Later, people people who move from Russian Turkestan to Eastern Turkestan and then from there on to India, Afghanistan, and then ultimately places in in Turkey like Adana, in and around Adana, where there are huge Uzbek communities, um, and also in Istanbul, right? And, and a lot of those communities do develop and expand, you know, in areas where there had been Su- Uzbek or Central Asian Sufi lodges. So I think in many ways, those roots still shape people's itineraries, right? Their destinations. There's a sort of infrastructure that's still there um, that that is important. But I mean, one thing that in thinking about the migration, for example, to uh, Mecca and Medina, right? Or to Jidda and other places, you know, I think that's really important is it sort of also helps to challenge this idea of a sort of Turkic brotherhood of peoples and the idea of that, you know, I mean, one thing that, you know, we haven't really talked about, and I guess I haven't really said very much about, we talked about Pan-Islam, but this idea that Pan-Turkism is a factor, you know, I mean, I I tried to challenge this idea because I don't really see a Turkic identity emphasized in any of my sources, right? I mean, there's definitely something there. I mean, there is something about language and a sort of commonality uh, that people are able to communicate, you know, to some degree, um, with people in in Ottoman, various Ottoman lands, but there there are types of community relations, right? The idea of being a local versus a foreigner in places like Mecca and Medina that have nothing to do with Turkic identity, right? And right. and so you have these very large communities of of Uzbeks and you know people who would later be called later become called Uyghurs, you know that that take shape in those places, and it, it's very much about connections that were forged across, you know, over the centuries right. that had to do with pilgrimage, with the sort of, and when I say pilgrimage there, it's, it's the, the spiritual dimension of that, the economic dimension, right? There are all of these merchants that have been traveling back and forth across the region. Um, so you see... That also is a sort of important factor in shaping migration patterns in right. the later part of the 20th century.
0: And we, we didn't talk about it at the beginning. I'm almost glad that we didn't talk about it, but this sort of emergent notion in the post World War I period of like the racial connections, mm-hmm. right, between Central Asia uh, and Turkey, posited almost as a rediscovering of mm-hmm. like a Turkic people, uh, you know, that narrative. Did gain a little traction, a little bit of power, and sort of in terms of how people wrote about the connections between these places. It's something that James Meyer also pointed out in a podcast about his new book. You know how the, the Turkist, the Pan-Turkist dimension has been overemphasized. Mm-hmm. I think that what your research shows is, if you want to talk about connections between Central Asia and Turkey, they're there, but they do really just flow along these um, uh, spiritual networks that you're describing in, in your work the pilgrimage and, and everything that came with it, which as right. we've seen today is quite a lot. Right. It's a lot more than pilgrimage.
1: <laughs> yes, definitely. And actually, you know, by using your use of the word spiritual now, it brings up another, uh, another point. And, you know, I use the term spiritual citizens when I'm talking about pilgrims and long-term residents of the empire, you know, making the argument that, uh, that Central Asians were, even though, even as they were excluded from the Ottoman citizenry, that they uh, staked a claim of belonging to the state based on their position as Sunni Hanafi Muslims under the protection of the Caliphate um, in this period, and that also because of the, the the state's attempts to reject extraterritorial rights, the sort of you know the the claim that they were under the exclusive protection of the Caliphate. Reinforce that to some degree, but I'm al- almost hesitant to use it at times because I feel that it's often understood as this ex- re- really as exclusively a religious sort of relationship, a religious right. dynamic, and that's really not my intention. So I think that in many ways, what what I'm trying to do is to sort of play with this idea of the Sultan's spiritual authority, mm-hmm. right, which is the claim that we know goes back to Kuchukai Narja in 1774 and that is promoted in in the later 19th century, right. The so the Ottoman states claims of having a form of spiritual authority or sovereignty over non-Ottoman Muslims in many ways um, becomes translated into demands, material demands from the state or uh, petitions for rights that are citizenship-like in their nature. Yeah. Right. And so um, I think that's something that's really important to sort of kind of keep keep those things in tension with one another, the sort of the spiritual and the material and the political, right? That these things are all interconnected. And so even as you're sort of challenging the idea of Pan-Turkism or Pan-Islamism, right? Religion still matters. At the same time, the state um, has to deliver on a lot of that, you know, that the sort of promotion of the Sultan's um, responsibilities towards the Ummah. And Mm -hmm. people use that, that language and they, and they use it in a way to advance their, their, uh, their claims. Yeah.
0: And, really you're hitting on an interesting uh, conceptual problem I think in the way people think about religion today I know that our cousins in religious studies could probably explain it better that dissociating the religious or the, or the spiritual from social socio-political context is uh, n- you know not really something that can be done neither historically or really even in our present and so We'll leave that for people yeah, to digest. We'll I leave just. that for
1: our cousins. <laughs> right. I was recently on a panel where there were a lot of kinship metaphors that were used, and it was fascinating, but, you know, it's not... It, because actually in so many ways I'm trying to argue against this idea of kinship among Turkic peoples, um, I sort of shy away from those types of um, ways to describe these relations. But um, another thought, and you know, another reason why I use the word spiritual, even though I'm a bit conflicted about it, is also at the same time to hold on to the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, this is a major religious rite and a journey that people are setting out, you know, from thousands of miles away to go to the holiest lands of Islam, right? And that, that, that we sort of need to hold on to that and to take seriously the reasons why people are traveling. So while visiting Istanbul, seeing the Sultan Caliph is definitely an important factor in the later 19th and early 20th century, arriving in Mecca and Medina and, and you know, seeing the Kaaba is still very central to the experience of a lot of a lot of pilgrims. And that's something that I'm trying to really hold on to into foreground in my study and, and engagement with sort of the, with these pilgrimage accounts, because you know there is so much hardship that is involved. And in this one account, the one that I mentioned earlier with uh, Muhammad Sadi Tashkandi, you know, a refrain, you know, something that he repeats over and over as he describes all of the the horrible conditions, right, under which he's traveling, um, you know, a way in which he contextualizes this is by describing the the transcendental experience of of arriving and re, you know seeing Mecca, yeah. right. And and I think that this is something real. And I think you know maybe a- approaching it from a, an anthropological perspective and sort of really thinking about this as a um, an experience, a real experience of communitas, right, is something that is, is important. And it seems that you know. I mean, there's been so much attention to pilgrimage uh, in the literature and such exciting work, you know, people working on, uh, you know, the the role of steam and and rail and print, right, these revolutions and how the increase in mobility led to Mm -hmm. new understandings of the Islamic world and transformations of the Hajj and great research on um, the geopolitics of the Hajj and, and the role of disease management. You know, all of this stuff is, you know, so exciting for me to read. But I really, I think it's important that, you know, when I'm writing, I still, I try really hard to hold on to, well, you know, well, why are people going? Yes, this right. is a so-called pillar of Islam, but, you know, w- what would make you set out from this village in China, you know, it, or I'm calling it China now, in a village in Chinese Turkestan, and knowing that you're going to experience all of this difficulty, you know, why would you still go, right? Yeah. And then, and then, in, and then, in, or, you know, a village in, in the Fergana Valley. When you return, you know, how do you describe it in overwhelmingly positive terms, right? What is it about that transformative experience of Mecca that recasts the experience, right? Because I think that that is not a sort of, it's not, it's not something like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Propaganda, right? It's not that at all. It's, it's, it is something that is, intrinsic to pilgrimage as a ritual right and yeah. so even in the modern era you know if for for devout muslims whose politics you know they they might abhor the saudi state but when they go and they return they're usually not talking about politics and and the the, the politics of the saudi dynasty they're they're oftentimes recounting that moment of being you know of circumambulating yeah. the kaaba and the experience of being in that mass of humanity right and so uh, I feel that sometimes when I go into that territory, people are, you know, quick to say that I'm romanticizing it. But I think that's something that's really important and central to studying Hajj.
0: What do, you, what do you romanticize? And this is a romantic thing. How can you put it any other way? People have feelings about this. You know, this is, you don't go there just to go, You're, you know. So, I mean, I, that's one of the things I like about the angle you take on this movement between Central Asia and the Ottoman Empire is we can get a little glimpse of you know the history of feeling or the the, the feelings that people had about travel, but also the feelings they had about belonging. Mm-hmm. But it's it's sort of getting in on it's 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 giving us a glimpse at you know sensibilities mm-hmm. of a late nineteenth century Muslim yes. from Central Asia political
1: imaginaries, as I <laughs> as I put sure. it in my dissertation, um, which was um, a really useful way of, of thinking about it. I mean, when I started talking about this, you know, how I got into the research originally. I mean, that was what I was trying to sort of reconstruct the political imaginaries of people from the Fergana Valley, right, their mm-hmm. views of Ottoman power. And I think that's something that I'm still engaging with, right? And that, and that you know, reaches into the, these various dimensions of the political, the spiritual, the social, right? The cultural connections. So, you know, how do people form their views of, of the Ottoman state? Um, and then, you know, what does their mobility uh, translate into... In terms of looking at, at late Ottoman history, what kinds of new questions does that open up for us?
0: Well, Lolly, we could keep talking a lot longer about a lot of these subjects. Like, I mean, there's no end to the material that can be discussed in a book-length uh, research project of sort of this uh, caliber. Uh, we'll have to end our conversation here and direct our leader, our readers to your our future <laughs> publications as well as other uh, books on our website. But I really want to thank you for sitting down with me and talking with me about this research. It's really uh, fits in well with a lot of the other things we've uh, done on the podcast, and I hope that you know our listeners are, have enjoyed it as well.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Now, for those of you who do want to find out more about the work of Dr. Lalejjan, as well as uh, other topics related to today's discussion, we have a short bibliography on our website where you can also leave your comments and questions. Also find a way to get in touch with the broader Ottoman History Podcast community, now over 20,000 Facebook followers and counting. I want to thank you all for listening all the way to the end of this podcast. Uh, invite you to join us next time, and until then, take care.